The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to our first ever edition of live stream What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well, Father. Great to be here. Good to see you. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, Father, I thought uh, tonight we could um, <clears throat> definitely discuss something topical. You know, we're in the uh, about the halfway point of Lent right mm -hmm. now, on uh, March 9th, the feast of Saint Francis of Rome. And Father, we've we've uh, you've recently come across a, a Lenten pastoral letter that was written by the bishop of uh, the Archbishop of, of Cincinnati uh, some some years ago. So, Father, could you give us a, a bit of background on this pastoral Lenten letter that you have and uh, and why it is so so remarkable? Well, yes, Tom, and I have to thank Father Martin Skirke of Immaculate Heart of Mary Church in uh, Black Eagle, Mon Eagle, Montana, for bringing this to our attention, that there was a uh, pastoral letter issued by the Archbishop of Cincinnati. So I'm delighted that uh, Father Skirke brought this to our attention because it contains information that's very interesting, not only for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati and its Catholic people, but actually uh, for the, the entire country. Uh, Archbishop John McNicholas was the Archbishop in 1940. It was um, in uh, January 31st, 1940, that he issued this pastoral letter to the Catholic people of Cincinnati. He addresses, it, he addresses it to the priests and the faithful of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and it's very interesting. It's called a Lenten Pastoral. It was issued January 31st because, of course, Ash Wednesday comes about midway through February, and so he was preparing the people and the clergy of Cincinnati for the coming Lenten season. And um, the first thing he enjoins upon the people of Cincinnati for Lent is to pray for peace. And the reason why he insisted on prayers for peace is because um, the Nazis had already invaded Poland from the, from the West on September 1st, 1939. The Bolsheviks from Russia invaded Poland from the East 16 days later on the 17th of September. And so uh, World War II, or what was to become World War II, uh, had officially started, okay? Uh, Lucia, the great seer, the eldest of the three children at Fatima, said that she knew when uh, Hitler's Germany invaded Austria in 1938 that World War II was coming. And that's when the great sign of the red sky and the sound of the jackboots marching to war was heard throughout basically the northern hemisphere. <clears throat> at least. Uh, in fact, we knew people who actually saw that sign in 1938. But as far as the world is concerned, uh, World War II began with the invasion of Poland 
from the West by the Germans, the Nazis, and from the East by the Russians, the Bolsheviks. <clears throat> the United States had not yet entered the war. It was only with Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7, 1941, that uh, the United States Congress was faced with that necessity. And so on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, 1941, the United States formally entered the war. And uh, soon after, also, uh, Germany declared war on the United States. And so we were completely engulfed in war at that point. No wonder Archbishop McNicholas called for the American people, and in this case particularly the Catholics in Cincinnati, to pray for peace. He probably foresaw, not only necessarily with human wisdom, but perhaps even with divine wisdom, he saw what was coming for the United States and the entire world. He knew that his Catholic people in Cincinnati, uh, especially the young people, the young generation, were soon going to be called to war. Uh, so that's the first order of business in his encyclical, in his uh, pastoral letter, to, to ask for prayers for peace. Uh, very prescient, considering, especially now that we look back and we see uh, the worst war predicted by Our Lady of Fatima uh, had arrived, actually. Now, he goes on and he talks about uh, the, the situation of marriage in the Cincinnati Archdiocese, and how there were a growing number of mixed marriages of Catholics marrying outside the faith. And he warns about that because he says it is very dangerous. It is dangerous to the faith of the Catholics who are getting married, more dangerous to the faith of the children. And uh, there are a number of other uh, issues that come from these mixed marriages. As you know, the Catholic Church traditionally has a prohibitive impediment <clears throat> against such mixed marriages, um, and for very good reason. Uh, there's a difference in, in principle, uh, sometimes the most important principles of one's life. Even a question of the meaning of the marriage vows is at stake here, and whether the marriage is even valid, because the other person who does not have the Catholic faith does not understand the marriage vows in the same way that the Catholic does. And so you have the prospect of two people standing there uh, making their marriage vows, and they do not mean the same thing by the vows. One means that the vows will indeed last as long as they both live, and the other one doesn't necessarily see it that way, <clears throat> because that person's religion says divorce is okay. In a case like that, you could very well have an invalid marriage to begin with. <clears throat> anyway, just uh, so people understand why the church finds it so uh, dangerous, <laughs> right? In, order to, in, in entering a mixed marriage. But that's where uh, Archbishop John McNicholas begins his admonition to the people after asking them for prayers for peace for the world. He talks about uh, the actual situation, the spiritual situation of the souls in Cincinnati, the Catholic souls. He talks about the dangers of mixed marriages, talks about the need for parental vigilance in raising the children. Um, even warns against uh, dating people who are divorced. You, you wouldn't think that Catholics in 1940 would need to be warned about that. He found it necessary to give a warning about that. And even then goes on to talk about the wonder of children. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that the primary essential purpose of getting married and being married is to bring life into the world, 
as God commanded, that we increase, multiply, and fill the earth. Yet, Archbishop McNicholas finds it necessary to tell his Catholic people in Cincinnati that children are the riches of marriage. <clears throat> Obviously, there had been some deterioration in the faith, and he was trying to address that, which is why he goes on in this uh, pastoral letter then to say that every pastor in the Cincinnati Archdiocese was required to give at least, at least two sermons during Lent on the Catholic teaching of marriage, on the sacrament of matrimony. And uh, the Archbishop, obviously a true Catholic bishop, uh, wanted the Catholic people to be under, uh, clear in their understanding of the Catholic teaching on marriage. It's interesting that he found it necessary, though. Uh, that they be instructed on the true Catholic meaning of marriage. He obviously had seen some serious deterioration. <clears throat> he then went on and he talked about the necessity of pastors knowing their so the souls of their people. And uh, he talked about parish censuses, where in a very practical way, the parish priest would get to know the people who are you know, in his care, in, in these parishes. He goes on to talk about the importance of the parish life. You know, a lot of our traditional Catholic people have grown up after Vatican II in this terrible disarray <clears throat> caused by Vatican II. And, I mean, even in the new order itself that follows Vatican II, there's an enormous amount of disarray in parish life. In some cases, they don't even call them parishes anymore. They call them faith communities or whatever. And uh, so many of the old parishes have been shut down, churches sold off, churches consolidated because lack of priests to care for them, lack of clergy. And, uh, and so even in the, in the Novus Ordo itself, which still technically has this parish structure, there's a lot of disarray. But traditional Catholics have found themselves having to, to find traditional priests wherever they can find them, true traditional priests. And maybe, maybe at the drive an hour or more. Uh, in fact, just today I went off uh, two and a half hours uh, to a gravesite ceremony for one of our uh, dear Catholic gentlemen who drives two and a half hours to Mass each way on Sunday. And this, wow. uh, our own Immaculate Conception Church here in Norwood, is his parish church. And yet he has to drive two and a half hours to be here. This is what has happened because of the uh, nuclear bomb of Vatican II that has gone off and uh, been so deadly to genuine parish life. So when Archbishop McNicholas is stressing the importance of the parish life as like a parish family for the Catholic people, uh, perhaps those at, at his time didn't appreciate the significance of what he was saying. But if they had lived to our times and still had the faith, they would see how important that was and why he was insisting on it, that there'd be a close-knit, strong parish life. And the pastors would have to see to it. Uh, he stresses the importance of the pastor being uh, true shepherds of the flock given to them in their parishes, their spiritual welfare, but also their, their material welfare too, and making sure that uh, if there are any poor in the parish, that they are provided for by the charity of the whole parish. Again, it's like it's one family. He goes on to talking about, talk about, about uh, the years of Catholic education that have been provided. He goes on to talking about the moral dangers. I presume one can look up this pastoral letter of uh, Archbishop John McNicholas, 
dated January 31st, 1940. I suppose one could probably find this. What I find most interesting, though, is what I would consider almost a prophecy. And uh, a prophecy for our times. Now here, this was written more than 80 years ago. And I want to read just three, well, actually two brief paragraphs, and maybe a sentence from the third, <clears throat> that tell you what Archbishop Nic Nicholas saw as the future in our United States of America, from the vantage point of 1940, even before our country had entered what was to be known as the Second World War. Um, with his headlines here, that is the, the titles, the subtitles, he identifies what he calls the greatest problem. And he says, undoubtedly the greatest problem confronting our country today is the training of 30 million or more of our youth in schools where belief in a personal God is not inculcated, where children are not trained to be good, that is, not formed according to moral principles, where the very atmosphere is one of religious indifference, where in many instances religion is derided, where subtle belittling, belittling of the supernatural and a revelation is a hobby of many unprincipled and uninformed teachers and atheistic professors. How unnecessary it is to expose our country to the evil consequences that must inevitably follow years of training in such schools. <clears throat> and then, under the subtitle, Religious Leaders, he says, If leaders of religion cannot be forced through the public opinion of parents who have the primary rights in the education of their children to sit at a conference table and to agree upon some plan of teaching morality in our schools, which will be submitted to the state, then our country is eventually doomed to chaotic conditions which will afford the radicals and the godless the very opportunities for which they are working in order to bring about a revolution. Schools without God and consequently without morality must eventually bring about the overthrow of our form of democratic government. Leaders without fixed moral principles will be the products of our present-day schools. They, in due time, will be in control of our government. Now that I consider to be prescient, if not prophetic. <clears throat> he could have foreseen, evidently he did foresee these times we're living in, where the product of this amoral and irreligious education is manifesting itself. <clears throat> Little did he know, though, what was on the horizon of Vatican II just 20 years later that would produce a Catholic like Joe Biden, a Catholic like Nancy Pelosi, or I should say Catholics like them and Catholics such as them, claiming to be devout Catholics and advocating abortion and all other kinds of perversions, and being supported from the Vatican. Little could Archbishop McNicholas have foreseen that, I'm sure. But this is the situation we have today. And finally, he does say here, but instructed and well-meaning parents who have the welfare of their children at heart and religious leaders of every group ought to see very clearly 
the inevitable dangers that we must face from our secularized education. So we have the uh, situation here uh, in this uh, presented in the pastoral letter of Archbishop Nicholas, in which he pretty much lays out the future as he sees it from the standpoint of 1940. Mm -hmm. And Tom, we're living that now. So uh, I just thought it very important to uh, reference this Lenten pastoral uh, by our own uh, Archbishop John T. McNicholas, Archbishop of Cincinnati in 1940, and realize we should take to heart what he wrote then, because everything he says in this encyclical, everything he said in this pastoral letter, I should say, applies to us today. So this bears study and it bears implementation today. Absolutely, and I, I believe we can we can post the link to that on our website, uh, wcbohio.com. That would be a good thing. I, I think you're not going to see a pastoral letter from a bishop like this right, today. Right, right, and I I thought it was fascinating to read through that for a couple of reasons, Father. Like like you said, so much of it is, is just prophetic. These things that he talks about: the prayer for peace, the mixed marriages, the need for parental <coughs> vigilance, and the, the, the riches of children and, and so on and so forth. All of this and, and the education certainly, all of that is certainly prophetic. prophetic. We certainly see all of, all of those issues manifested today. But I think the, the most fascinating thing, Father, is considering the time frame mm. when this was written in 1940. You know, it's so many Americans, so many Catholics even will, you know, look at the, the 1950s, you know, as kind of the, the golden age and before oh, Vatican too. Mm. But here, this is even before the 1950s. Um, yeah. he, he is expounding upon all, all of these problems, and really, I, I think it, it's uh, it's easy to overlook that fact mm. of how bad things were. Um, you know, we, we always talk about Pope St. Pius X and how, um, you know, he, his, uh, his, his first encyclicals, he talked about the state of the world and how, how incredibly terrible things were back then, and this was the early mm. 1900s. Mm. And so I think it's it's fascinating to just consider how long this this process of, of subversion has been going on, mm. um, not only in, in the United States but really the whole world, the Catholic Church, of course. Um, so I think that's definitely right. Well, the Catholic Church was the primary target of that because the Catholic Church is the, the conscience, really the conscience of the world. Mm-hmm. <coughs> sure. And uh, there there you have the magisterial authority of Christ Himself to teach the truths of faith and morals. And so the, the enemies of souls, our souls, have the primary interest in attacking right there, that voice of conscience of the world, the voice of faith and the voice of conscience in her magisterial authority over faith and morals. Absolutely. Father, I would like to get through some emails because I, I think some of these um, are, are related in a way, especially this <coughs> this first one. I would uh, be interested to hear your, your response to this. It's from a viewer. He says, uh, I have heard some say the reason there is so much poverty, unemployment, disease, and etc. Uh, in the world today is that Satan is currently having his way with the world. The answer I have heard to this is that for some reason God is allowing Satan to have significant control over the world, but one day God will intervene and put an end to all of this. I have no idea if that assessment is true, but uh, I thought I would ask your opinion of it, Father Jenkins. Well, it's not really my opinion. Uh, I think this uh, gentleman has uh, heard this. He's probably also witnessed it. He's probably seen it happening around him. Uh, But yes, Satan does in fact have a sway right now because he's not being opposed, as he must be. How would would the devil be opposed? He would be opposed by the power of Christ, right? 
He'd be, the prince of this world would be, would be uh, cast out as our Lord cast out demons during his life. An interesting uh, witness to this fact um, is Father uh, Amorth, Father Gabriele Amorth, the chief exorcist in Rome, who wrote a book back in the, about the year 2000 called An Exorcist Tells His Story. He said in his book that he was writing the, precisely writing that book because the Catholic uh, clergy was not doing its job in opposing the work of Satan. And uh, this meant that basically Satan was having a field day. Read what Father Amorth says. He makes no bones about it. I mean, he says that there's, the Catholic clergy are the ones who are supposed to resist him and they're not doing it. Uh, Father Amorth certainly understood more than he was willing to say. He saw what was going on more than he could, could say, perhaps. He pointed out that uh, after Vatican II, the situation in the church radically deteriorated. He mentioned uh, the um, taking of the prayers uh, after Mass for the conversion of Russia and the taking away the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel at the end of the traditional low mass. He talked about that as being a very, very tragic mistake. He talked about taking out the exorcisms from the rite of baptism in the change of the baptismal ceremony. He talked about that as being a tragic mistake. He said that after Vatican II, uh, the, uh, the ritual for exorcism was not rewritten or given a new emphasis it was simply dropped. And after Vatican II, with the revision of the uh, ceremonies for ordination of priests, actually the minor orders and the major orders, the traditional minor and traditional major orders were changed so that the, the minor order of exorcist was simply annihilated after Vatican II. All of those things have just uh, basically uh, stripped the weapons from the hands of um, those who would be or should be the ones to do battle with Satan and drive him out. Uh, were these things done by accident? Was this simply all one terrible mistake? No. It was too highly organized and too well thought out to have been a mistake. It was deliberate. An enemy had done that to disarm uh, the church against the, uh, the, the devil and his power. But I think the worst of it was the new mass the new Mass which came out, the new liturgy, which um, actually attacked the true meaning of the Mass. And let's face it, I mean, the, 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 the new Mass, as it came from Anabali Bunini and his, his desk, <clears throat> is not the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. It uh, claims to be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but it removed any claim to be the sacrifice of reparation of Jesus Christ crucified. It is not the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. That's, what, that's the new Mass. So when you make such, such changes, so that you essentially change what was to be the holy sacrifice of our Lord made present for us on our altars, you replace the altars with tables, you put the tabernacles on the side, and you redefine the Mass to be a gathering together of the people of God to celebrate the memorial of the Lord under the presidency of the priest, instead of the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, what do you expect? This is exactly what you would expect. Satan realizes that he now is free to do as he will. There's no one who will oppose him. 
And um, when finally, after challenge, he said that that new rite of exorcism was absolutely useless. If he had to use it, he'd give up. And so he continued using the traditional rite of exorcism to his dying day. He rejected their new rite, saying it was useless. Worse than useless, probably. <clears throat> so this is what we're dealing with. So I think what this gentleman is seeing here is exactly right. Will, will God put an end to this, though, Father? Well, we know that God will put an end to this at some point. You know, uh, We also know that there will be a lot of evil things that will happen in the world because of it, uh, that the devil is running rampant. And uh, their, their new mass and... Uh, you know, their new sacraments uh, are not going to effectively oppose Satan's power. We, we have to draw back to the traditional mass, the traditional sacraments, and the traditional uh, rite of exorcist, the traditional order of exorcist, uh, in order to uh, have that power to oppose Satan. Um, we know that, that God will put an end to it, uh, ultimately, the book of the Apocalypse, which some call the book of Revelations, talks about our Lord coming <clears throat> to confront the Antichrist and simply, literally, uh, just blow him away with the breath of his mouth. Um, at what time that will happen, we don't know, but it will happen. So, when he says that, yes, at some point God will put an end to that, meaning Satan's uh, heyday, Yes, that is definitely true. Uh, we know from what Our Lady said at Fatima that in the end of all this, her Immaculate Heart will triumph. <clears throat> and um, so we, we find the, the crushing of the head of Satan does lie in the future. Well, Father, this is a very similar question that one of our viewers asked if the restoration of the Church will occur before the Second Coming of Christ or only when Christ <coughs> returns. Well, you know, there's some very good questions about that, that being one of them. There are those who are saying there'll be a thousand-year reign of Mary, and, uh, and uh, that'll be, they say, after the defeat of the Antichrist. Um, it's frankly, at least in my mind, somewhat un uncertain. I don't know. I'm trying to put it all together, I think Father uh, uh, Kramer, Father Barnett Kramer, in the book, the, the, his book called The Book of Destiny on the Apocalypse, probably has the best answer of all, but I'd have to do some more study of that. Whether the Antichrist would come and uh, <clears throat> then our Lord will come in glory to judge the living and the dead in the very process of, of uh, you know, defeating the Antichrist, or whether God will defeat the Antichrist and there will be a thousand years of peace and triumph for the church. I'm not sure, you know, uh, exactly. You, that is such an important question. You'd think that there'd be more clarity on it, at least in, I would think in my mind, but it, I must admit I don't know. And so I'd be interested in hearing from our viewers what they know, what they know or think they know about this, what evidence they have from Catholic prophecy about it. Uh, I also will try to, uh, you know, uh, do more reading on the subject and educate myself better. But Our Lady did say at Fatima that in the end her Immaculate Heart would triumph. Um, the, the, the question really comes from uh, reading St. Matthew chapter 24 and uh, St. Um, 
St. Luke chapter 21, I believe it is, with the coming of the, uh, our Lord's return, our Lord's coming for the last judgment, the, the great judgment, the general judgment as it's known. <clears throat> Whether that will uh, immediately follow the defeat of the Antichrist or whether the Antichrist's demise will signal a rise of the church uh, in her glory. And uh, I mean, I haven't really ventured a guess at this, but my somewhat limited understanding of that right now would indicate, at least to me, that through the agency of the two witnesses, Elias and Henoch, uh, the Antichrist will be defeated, <clears throat> that their, their death, their sacrificial deaths, and then resurrection will signal the end of the reign of the Antichrist. And there will arise then uh, the church purified and uh, sanctified, and there will be a, a great uh, era of uh, love for our Lord Jesus Christ and devotion to his blessed mother. And uh, so there will be great saints at that time. And there will then come a period at some future date when the charity of men will then grow cold once again. And then our Lord will come to judge. That's my uh, rather limited understanding of the moment. But that's the best that I have okay. information. As I say, I'd like to... Uh, uh, you know, glean other reliable information, uh, either in favor of that or against it, one or the other. It just, it's the truth that matters. So if anyone has any further information, I'd appreciate knowing sure. about it. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. It certainly is very important, mm -hmm. obviously. We, we worry about, of course, our own salvation. We worry about the generation to come, about what they're going to have to deal with. One thing we know for sure is that they're going to have to deal with some very serious difficulties and some great hardships and some great challenges to their faith. But we also know that the graces will be there to sanctify them. And uh, there will be many great saints who will uh, someday populate heaven, uh, who will sanctify themselves in, this, in the world as it is now and the world in the generations to come. So God will not... God's grace will not be wanting to us. That's right. Then, um, Father, we have an email uh, with a question about Freemasonic popes. Uh, this viewer says that a simple internet search will reveal reports uh, that some of the, uh, the um, <clears throat> post-Vatican II popes were actually Freemasons. So he asked, Father, how much truth is there in these rumors? Can they be confirmed? Uh, if it is true for these post-conciliar popes, does not entry into the Freemasonic Lodge automatically excommunicate the, the person? Is it true that a pope must be uh, Catholic, men, and priest? And uh, if this is true, then do we even have a pope when this sitting, quote, pope is a Freemason uh, and would thereby be excommunicated and no longer Catholic? Hmm. Well, uh, Tom, it's a very good question. It, it is true that there is a lot of information and misinformation on the Internet, as you know. And uh, there, there are entire lists circulating of members of the Catholic hierarchy, even back before Vatican II, right. who supposedly were 
members of the Freemasonic lodges and uh, the dates that they were initiated and the names of the lodges where they enrolled and so on. And uh, I place very little credibility in these things. Uh, why? Because I find it uh, hard to believe that they would actually be authentic. <clears throat> I think the Masons would have kept a very tight rein on those things. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> could they be true? It's possible. Do we know that they are true? No. Do we have any way of verifying that they are true? Not that I know of. I no idea. I remember when I, I was a seminary with Monsignor uh, Marcel Lefebvre in Acon. <clears throat> One day, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, told us uh, how sad he was to see an issue of the publication Sisi No No, which uh, he said showed a picture of the bishop who ordained him and consecrated him one of the three bishops who consecrated him, um, a cardinal, actually at that time, Achille Leonard, um, standing outside the doors of a Freemasonic lodge. <clears throat> the message being that Leonard himself was a Freemason. And Monsieur Lefebvre was expressing his, his sorrow to see that. But when we obtained a copy of that issue of CC No No, and we looked at it for a few moments, we realized that uh, this picture had been contrived. It was not a real picture. It showed uh, Cardinal Leonard standing all arrayed in his cardinalatial robes, very formal, uh, formally dressed as a cardinal, Catholic cardinal, <clears throat> in choir dress, I believe, or, or even ceremonial dress. <clears throat> And uh, that was superimposed over the portal to a Masonic Lodge in France. So there were two pictures that were spliced together, I guess, or whatever, uh, whatever you put that. So there was no picture of Archbishop Leonard or Cardinal Leonard standing outside a Masonic Lodge or at the gate of a Masonic Lodge. And um, <clears throat> I felt badly for Monsieur Lefebvre that uh, this was doctored and presented this way because of its visual impact. Um, now, could Cardinal Leonard have been a Mason? Possibly. <clears throat> there was an argument uh, that came out from a, a, a certain uh, kind of ecclesiastical adventurer, I would say, who uh, supposedly went to a friend or an, an acquaintance at a party um, and uh, he, he, actually, the scenario that he presented was that someone, and that's it, a, a stranger came up to him at a party and said he had to unburden his conscience that he had been at a Masonic Lodge and a member of Masonic Lodges and that he was present when Cardinal Leonard had been received into the Masonic Lodge. And he was identified only as a Mr. B. And that was the evidence that was used to begin spreading word that Cardinal Leonard was a Mason. And um, <clears throat> what other evidence has been, might have been discovered in the meantime, I don't know. But um, I find all of this to be very uh, suspect. Not that I, I don't think that there were Masons in the hierarchy. I'm quite sure there were. In fact, one of the members of a religious order to which I belonged for six years, uh, the Paramount's Retentions, or in this country known as the Norbertines. <clears throat> One elderly Norbertine priest was actually working with Anibale Bonini, 
at producing the new mass. And uh, that Norbertine priest was later asked in an interview with 30 days, uh, threatened to join any. Um, if, in fact, Arch, uh, rather, Anibale Bonini was a Freemason. And uh, this man who had collaborated with him said, it's very possible he was, but he didn't know for sure. But there he said, and I quote, there were many Freemasons at work in high positions in the church at that time. And he just said that as it was a matter of fact, as it was something commonly known. I thought that was both interesting and alarming. <clears throat> so it, I, I would say it is kind of an accepted fact, I think, at this point, that there were many Freemasons who had actually made their ways into the hierarchy. Um, all we need to know is the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita uh, about the Masonic plan to infiltrate the church and realize they had been quite successful in doing that, right? That uh, St. Pius X in his encyclical Pescendi spoke about the Masons who had worked their way into the very heart and veins of the church and were trying to destroy her from within. And this was in 1907, about a hundred years after the permanent instruction of the Alta Medina actually first came to light in the Masonic lodges of northern Italy. <clears throat> so um, I think it's a given that there are members of the Masonic lodges card-carrying, initiated members of the, of the Masonic lodges in Italy who are, have gotten into the hierarchy, responsible for Vatican II, and all the modernism that has come uh, into play ever since. Now, whether or not, let's say, John XXIII, who was extremely cozy with the Masons, uh, notoriously so, <clears throat> Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict, Francis, whether they have been Masons, all of them or any of them, I don't know. And uh, I would actually tend to doubt it. The reason I tend to doubt it is because the permanent instruction of the Alpha Alta Vendita, uh, penned by a man who used the codename Nubius, probably Mazzini, the great arch-enemy of the church of the 1800s, Mazzini, and executor of priests, actually. Um, he probably penned those words and uh, crafted that instruction and that whole plan to infiltrate the church. He said the objective was to gain control of the papacy. He said we have to f corrupt a generation of Italian young people in order to provide a generation worthy of their, uh, the future of the church. In other words, get a corrupt generation, corrupt the families, corrupt the offspring, corrupt the vocations, have them get into seminaries, seminaries, have them go through the training, have them be ordained priests, have them be so exemplary that they go on to become the, the, uh, the bishops, have those bishops become so exemplary all the time, they're masons now, that they will go on to become the cardinals. But that's where he draws the line, he says. We don't necessarily want the man who then becomes the pope to be a Freemason. He says it would actually be against our best interests to actually have one of the members of our own 
lodges or our craft become the Pope. And he said, because if uh, one of some of our own people who was very much aware of the entire scheme became the Pope, if he had a change of heart, he could expose the whole thing and ruin everything. So in the permanent instruction of the Altavendita, Nubius warned against that and said, what we want is a man whom we have formed, whose thinking we have formed, a man whose mind and heart we have formed, who thinks exactly like we do. A man who thinks like a Freemason, but is not a member of the Freemasons. <clears throat> because if he thinks like a Freemason, he will do the work of the Freemasons. And he will corrupt the church entirely from top to bottom. He says, and the clergy and the laity of the, of the Catholic Church will follow him, carrying the keys of Peter, they think, carrying the banner of Christ with the cross. He will march forward, and he will, they, he, according to Nubius, it'll take just the little finger of the successor of Peter in the plot to set on fire the four corners of the world with revolution, just like what we see with Francis right now, see. So I tend to think that, that Nubius's plan is being followed to the T and that they never had the intention of electing to the papacy or the papacy of the Novus Ordo anyway, um, a man who would actually be a member of the lodges because I, I think they realized that they can't control the grace of God. And if they had had a man who was thoroughly familiar with the plan, the plot, the program of the Masons, that if the grace of God changed him, that he would have the power to undo all of their hard work of infiltration and perversion in the church. So they were very careful not to put a man in that position who would have that power over them. That's why I, I doubt that they are actually card-carrying members of the Masons. Um, do they think like the Masons? Absolutely. Francis, does he think like the Masons? Well, first of all, the Masons praised John the Twenty-Third. The Masons praised Paul the Sixth. They praised him. They gave him awards for what he was doing to the church. Right? Made him. Uh, made, they made Pope John good. Pope John. They made Paul VI a great champion of open-mindedness, right? And so on. They praised him. They praised them for their worldliness. And uh, so it is, uh, even to Francis himself, the Masons have praised him and what he's doing. Uh, what a great thinker he is and all the rest, you know. And of course, these men just eat it up. They love it. They're very worldly. You know, they, they glory in that. They glory, as St. Paul says, in what should be their shame. But, um, but I think Francis is far beyond being a Mason. I think Francis goes far beyond the Masonic thinking in terms of his leftist naturalism, rationalism, if I call it that, and his faithlessness. I, I, he talks piously at times, um, but I, I think that's basically just uh, for show. Because 
he says the most outrageous things at other times that are such total blasphemies. One recent statement he made that God does not demand or expect our love. Do you recall that? Yes, sir. He said that? And that is like, that is a mega heresy. That is like a meta heresy. That is total apostasy. The denial of the first great commandment. That God does not even care about our love. He loves us so much that he doesn't care whether we love him or not, essentially. He doesn't want and need our love. Need in the sense that he doesn't demand it. Uh, that is a total denial of everything of the Catholic faith, uh, to say that. So, um, no, I, I think Francis has uh, actually gone far beyond the Masonic agenda in his platform, in his program, to destroy the church. Wow. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of a protracted answer, but... No, that's, that's good, though. That's good. Thank you for that, Father. Um, one other topic I wanted to get into tonight, we've, um, we've had this email for, for several weeks now, and I, we intended to get to it sooner, but um, this, uh, there has been apparently this, um, this program or a group going around uh, that's called Exodus 90, right. Father, and uh, we've had some of our viewers ask about that and, and your opinion on that, and... Um, uh, this viewer wrote in, and, and um, one of our viewers talked about uh, some of the long list of um, certain penances that this Exodus 90 group uh, uh, proposes for its members, and things such as a, a cold shower, uh, cold showers every day, and um, physical exercise, spiritual reading, fasting, certain prayers. Um, there's also a, a, holy, a daily holy hour has to be made. Uh, Things like no television, no no sports, um, various things like that. And so there's this list of, of penances. And this viewer says uh, he declined the invitation, saying that while the zeal is laudable, this kind of piling on is unwise, and it's a recipe for failure, and that the better practice would be to commit to one doable thing. So what do you think about that, Father, this Exodus 90 in general? Do you think that's a wise thing to commit to? Or what's your well, I'm not terribly on? familiar with the Exodus 90. Um, I think it is a manifestation of the poverty of the Novus Ordo. Uh, because, as I understand it, there were seminarians and even a priest or two involved in starting it because they found that in trying to deal with the uh, terrible influence of the modern world, that it affected even the modern priests and modern seminarians so much that they found it necessary to start some kind of a program to even fight the influence of the modern world in their own lives. And I think that, again, shows the poverty of the Novus Ordo, that priests and seminarians who are well-meaning, well-intentioned, and want to be faithful to our Lord, but they're in the Novus Ordo, and therefore they're in kind of uh, a barren landscape of, of devotion and piety. And they have to kind of fend for themselves and, and invent programs for themselves, which basically are putting into effect the traditional practices. It sounds to me as though they're using, they're trying to implement the traditional practices of Catholic piety, reaching back to those because the Novus Ordo gives them little or nothing to go by or to go on. And in itself, that's a laudable thing. I would hope that that would lead them back to practicing the traditional faith in its entirety, 
right? The fact that they're looking for some vestiges of traditional Catholic piety, I'd hope, is a good start. Uh, another example of that would be Father Donald Calloway and his de uh, dedication and consecration to St. Joseph. Again, <clears throat> something laudable, something, uh, you know, trying to reach back to traditional Catholic piety in the wasteland of the Novus Ordo. You'd hope it would lead them back to the traditional Catholic faith in, in its completeness. Um, as far as the advisability of the Exodus 90 program, I tend to agree with our reader that it, it sounds like it's so comprehensive, it's like an entire way of life. Yes. And, uh, you know, we hear about the Nutri-Slim programs and all kinds of dieting programs. And, um, I mean, those, I mean, people struggle to diet, and they struggle to do even one thing in their life, to lose weight or, you know, give up smoking or whatever. But this is like adopting a whole new way of life, you know, to do that. And uh, it reminds me almost of like the 12-step program of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or programs uh, like, uh, you know, like to, to overcome drug addiction and someone like that. And yes, I mean, the toxicity of the world might really require an actual detox. <clears throat> But, I mean, to do that, generally people go off for these programs and they enroll in these, uh, they actually relocate, and go into some kind of a, a community setting where they're just detoxing, um, going out a protracted retreat. This is something that people are supposed to try to do themselves at home. I fear it's true that they might be setting themselves up with um, trying to do too much too quickly. And again, the problem is they're still uh, in, in living this, trying to do this within the context of the Novus Ordo, meaning the new Mass, the new sacraments, uh, the new theology, and all the rest. I mean, how does one undertake a traditional Catholic program of piety and make it work within the Novus Ordo? There's, there's a class there, there's a contradiction there. Uh, inevitably, there will be. Now, I understand that there are well over 30,000 people who've signed on to this. And uh, after the first week of signing on, I think they want you to send $90 or something like that to sign up, and you get the resources and all that. Which, I don't know, I, I found that to be rather peculiar. But uh, in any case, maybe it's supposed to incentivize people that I paid my money, so I want to follow through the program. I don't know. Um, I don't know why the money is there, but in any case, I don't know who's really directing this program. Uh, it seems to me that it could be taken off uh, somehow in a wrong direction, so I'd, I'd have to know a lot more about it. As far as recommending traditional Catholic practices in themselves, regardless of any Exodus 90 program, as far as cold showers, especially to overcome the temptations to impurity, <clears throat> I would say, yes, this is traditional Catholic piety that would uh, move one to do that, to gain control of himself uh, by the grace of God against these temptations to learn the willpower to fight these things. <clears throat> That's true. St. Saint Eli, uh, I'm sorry, Saint Francis of Assisi <clears throat> used to have a very—he had a very ardent temperament, and he would cast himself. You know, he would 
take off the habit to a certain extent and throw himself into a snowbank or whatever, to, uh, or into a thorn bush in order to fight the temptations. He was training himself for combat, to train himself for the, the willpower to turn away from these temptations of impurity. And he mastered them by the grace of God, by those um, ardent um, penances and so on. So this is nothing new. And yes, one could certainly begin, if not cold showers, tepid showers, and then turning more and more toward the cold side to kind of steal himself in that regard. But in itself, it's a good practice, undertaken for a good reason. One doesn't have to join Exodus 90 to do it. It's another $90. Uh, one can undertake fasting. Of course, during Lent, we're supposed to anyway. Again, you know, you have the Novus Ordo Lent, where you have the fasting and the abstinence on Ash Wednesday and Fridays and and so on and so forth. But the traditional practice was uh, fasting and partial abstinence every single day, except on Friday, total abstinence, right? And, uh, and, every, and every Friday during the year, total abstinence. So already the Novus Ordo represents a, a weakening of this and uh, a kind of a forsaking of the traditional practices of penance. <clears throat> it sounds like they're trying to bring them back in through another avenue here. But one doesn't have to sign up for a program like that to practice the traditional Catholic program of penances. So I would say, if one wants to do that, well, let him return to the practice of the traditional Catholic faith. And not just say, well, let's adopt certain traditional program, uh, practices of the traditional faith and stop there. No, return to practicing the traditional Catholic faith. It's the traditional Catholic Latin Mass, the traditional Catholic sacraments, and all the rest. And as far as, uh, you didn't bring this up, but I mentioned Father Donald Calloway and his uh, consecration, consecration to St. Joseph. Um, you know, here, here we have um, Francis, uh, who declares this uh, like the year of St. Joseph, and dedicates the year to St. Joseph. And it all sounds very Catholic, but at the same time, he issues, uh, you know, an apostolic exhortation in which he basically just uh, whitewashes living openly in adultery and says, well, it may th maybe they can't help it, and maybe it's not even a mortal sin, and let's give them Holy Communion, right? And he, he sanctions this. Uh, and so how does that work with devotion to St. Joseph? And this is cl classic modernism, Right? You speak contradictions. You speak contradictions. <clears throat> it discourages the people who are logical because they say, he's contradicting himself. This can't be the voice of Christ. So he drives people like that away. And others who might say, by craving any, any sign of Catholicism, will say, oh, look, when he says things that are Catholic, then we follow him. You know, but not when he says things that aren't Catholic. So now you get to pick and choose. Well, that's not the Catholic position either, really. Right? <clears throat> I mean, you know, that's talking like a politician. When you're talking to one group, you're pro-life. When you're talking to another group, you're pro-choice, as they call it, right? Depends on the audience you're talking to and try, who you're trying to appeal to. That's the work of a politician. That's not the work of a pope, certainly, to do that. So, um, I mean, there are those who've gotten on board with the idea, well, let's promote devotion to St. Joseph. And, of course, Father Calloway himself, it's interesting, um, he uh, converted to, well, the Novus Ordo, right? And uh, as a young man, I guess, and uh, 
<clears throat> you, you know, he, he was born on June 29th, 1972, so that puts him pretty firmly within the realm of the Novus Ordo when he's growing up. And he got himself into trouble as a young man and then converted, changed his ways, entered the Novus Ordo Seminary, was ordained a Novus Ordo priest, and there's no doubt that he is a Novus Ordo priest. He says the Novus Ordo liturgy and he administers the Novus Ordo rites and so on and so forth. So he really is a clergyman of the Novus Ordo, okay? But it's clear he still has uh, the piety, the personal piety of, of a traditional, the traditional piety of the church. You see that. It's a little bit peculiar when you go to his own personal website and you look at the pictures there because he posts pictures of himself that, you know, you... That, you wouldn't really post, you know. <laughs> um, you wouldn't really post if you were traditional-minded thinking. Um, but, you know, um, he wasn't raised in the traditional Catholic faith. But it's clear that somehow he has imbibed a certain traditional Catholic piety about him. And he wrote a 350-page book uh, about St. Joseph and... Uh, looking to him as one, as one spiritual father, promoting that, and a 33-day consecration to St. Joseph, kind of mirroring St. Louis de Montfort's uh, consecration to our Blessed Lady, right. okay, the consecration to Mary. Uh, all of this is very laudable. And I would hope that in, in the course of time and in the course of grace, it would lead... Um, Reverend Galloway to the traditional faith and embracing and practicing entirely the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion, meaning the traditional Catholic Mass, that he would realize that the new Mass was never meant to be what the Catholic Church always considered truly the Mass, the, the, the unbloody sacrifice of our Lord on Calvary, and that he would embrace the true Mass, the traditional Mass, I would hope that he would also go to be conditionally ordained because he was ordained in the new rite, evidently, by bishops who themselves were consecrated, consecrated in the new rite. And uh, there are serious, serious questions and doubts that arise because of those, those new rites. They're the work of the modernists. That should make them very suspect. So I would hope that Father Calloway's uh, piety and through the agency of St. Joseph, he'd be led back to the traditional Catholic priesthood. And uh, when, I, when I first saw his picture on the, the website, I, I, I must say, uh, maybe I'm, I'm talking to somebody who was growing up a generation before him, maybe two generations, <laughs> gener maybe yeah, a generation before him. And the first thing I th saw when I saw his picture was, my goodness, he looks like Wally. He looks like Wally from Leave It to the Beaver. And, you know, in my generation, that was not a bad thing because this was very wholesome, you know. It was very wholesome. And uh, I thought, well, you know, my first reaction was that he, he kind of connoted that wholesomeness of that period of time and his promotion of St. Joseph. Well, I, those were two things that I thought were very... <laughs> meant a great deal to me. I'm sorry for bringing this down to the level of that. But, um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is I do not question his motives. 
uh, from what I can see, as far as one can tell, as far as I can tell, that he's very sincere about wanting to promote devotion to St. Joseph and the traditional faith and love for St. Joseph <clears throat> and brings souls to know St. Joseph and to follow uh, his example. Would you recommend that traditional Catholics purchase his book and, and do the 33 Well, I haven't read the book. I don't know everything that's in it. Uh, what I have read about it and the little that I have read of it, it sounds very Catholic to me. Yeah. As I say, it sounds like he has the traditional Catholic piety to St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. um, even the prayers themselves, I mean, the, the prayers of the consecration are very traditional prayers in what they say, that as far as I can see. And the, they have the traditional litany to St. Joseph, too. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah that's something they, the Novus Ordo, the modernists haven't yet gotten to, to, to wreck. <laughs> wait, just wait, though. Give them a chance. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but they're using the traditional uh, litany to St. Joseph and a very, a very traditional prayer of consecration in its piety. And uh, each day there are readings, short readings about St. Joseph. And the few of those that I've seen are very much on the mark of Catholic piety. Do uh, I think one should enroll in anything? I don't think anyone should enroll in anything with regard to the Novus Ordo. And unfortunately, um, you see, I, I see a danger at all this time. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems is that the modernists made the changes, um, kind of gutting the faith uh, um, and leaving kind of the shadow uh, in the mass, the new mass and so on. But they leave it open to interpretation so that the Catholic people can interpret it in a, in a Catholic sense. It's not really what's there explicitly, only implicitly, but they, they interpret it that way. So there are people, like my own grandparents, for example, who went to the New Mass, and they were interpreting in the Catholic sense. Because it came so, quote-unquote, natural to them to understand it. <clears throat> but the actual text of the New Mass doesn't actually explicitly say what the Church believes about the Mass. So... Um, my, my concern is that one can read these things of traditional piety and get the impression that actually nothing's changed, that the Novus Ordo really is Catholic at heart. And here's proof positive. Look, we have devotion to St. Joseph, and that's traditional, a traditional Catholic practice. So the Novus Ordo must be still Catholic after all, really. And um, so when things are bad, it's because there are abuses. But that's not really what the Novus Ordo is all about. Now, nothing could really be farther than the truth, but that's the veneer that they try to give it. So as well-intentioned as I think uh, Father Calloway is, I think he can uh, also um, be used to mislead people in thinking that the Novus Ordo is Catholic at heart. And uh, really nothing essential has changed. Mm -hmm. Now that's looking at it from one viewpoint. The other viewpoint is, if he's inspiring traditional Catholic piety in people out there in the wasteland of the Novus Ordo, and he's, in doing, he's, he's bringing them to pray to St. Joseph, mm -hmm. and uh, sincerely try to follow his example, that can open them to graces from God which may lead them more and more and more in the direction of Catholic 
tradition and ultimately lead them back to practice the Catholic faith in its entirely, in the true Catholic religion. So we can hope for that too, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, would I discourage people from making that consecration to St. Joseph? No, I would not. We have the Feast of St. Joseph here in the midst of Lent, just days away now. And uh, I always have a novena for our families during the nine days leading up to and including the Feast of St. Joseph. I offer those nine masses, those nine days, completing those masses on the Feast of St. Joseph for our Catholic families. I'm going to include the, those of our viewers as well in the, the, that intention at, those, at the altar for those masses. So I would never discourage anybody from cultivating a devotion to St. Joseph. I just don't think if, if they want to, if, if it's a question of somehow formally signing up sure. <clears throat> with a Novus Ordo diocese or other program, I would say, don't do that. Right. You know, um, you get the book, fine. Read the book, fine. See something encouraging or discouraging about the book, let us know. I'd be very grateful to know your impressions. Uh, but to pray the prayers that are being offered here, I see no objection to doing so. They yeah. seem to be quite Catholic in their meaning. Good. Well, Father, this is very fitting, being, being the month of, month of March, which is dedicated to St. Joseph. So maybe we can end with this, but during Lent, how can, during, during this month of March uh, of St. Joseph, how can, we, uh, how can we honor him? How can traditional Catholics honor St. Joseph? Well, the uh, great thing about St. Joseph, of course, is uh, his absolute dedication to the will of God. And in that sense, he was, quote-unquote, a worthy spouse of the Blessed Mother, who was the handmaid of the Lord, right? And G Joseph, St. Joseph, was the servant of the handmaid of the Lord, and even beyond that, the foster father chosen by God the Father in heaven, as his representative on earth, as the father of his own son. Now, it is impossible to pay St. Joseph sufficient honor to reflect the magnitude of that, of that dignity that God bestowed upon him. And we see the character of the man whom God chose, and we see how perfectly suited he was for this. We see in a series of instances, and by the way, not one word from St. Joseph, not one word is recorded in sacred scripture, okay? But that's the power of the man's example. He didn't need to speak, as it were. Our Lady spoke the beautiful canticle of the Magnificat, <clears throat> and when she did speak, actually only, I think, four times recorded in sacred scripture, it's always very, very powerful, and reflected her own soul. Okay, as the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. And so she is explicitly accepting a, an explicit invitation from God. So yes, Our Lady did speak, but Joseph, Joseph did not speak. And it's as though he, he spoke through the powerful example. <clears throat> when he discovered that Our Lady was with, with child, not his, he had such faith and confidence in her chastity he didn't understand how this could be, but he wasn't going to denounce her, which he would have had an obligation to do, really, if there were a matter of turpitude involved. But because 
of kind of a conundrum of a conscience, a conundrum where he didn't, he couldn't understand exactly what was happening, why his espoused wife Mary was with child and it wasn't his child. <clears throat> How could she be innocent? And yet he believed in her innocence. So he agreed to put her away privately so she would not bear the consequences of any crime. But he felt also in conscience that he could not proceed not knowing what was really happening here. Okay, So here's a man who we first find in a, in a kind of crisis of conscience, literally, and yet his faith carried him through, that he, he prudently chose the right thing to do in a very, very difficult situation, more than awkward, a very troubling situation. It's a perfect example of a man facing a real, well, literally, crisis of conscience and striving to do exactly the right thing. Um, and God, of course, then revealed to him, not Our Lady, but God himself revealed to St. Joseph what the truth was, that the child conceived is the very Son of God himself. Now, you can imagine St. Joseph coming to realize the reality of that, <clears throat> that he is espoused, meaning is the husband of Mary, and therefore, this child was entrusted to his care. What a what, what an amazing, what an amazing reality, right? How it took him, we don't know what went through his mind and heart, but we see immediately his acceptance of that role, uh, as though God had been preparing him for that moment. And so he simply proceeded, according to plan, right? God's plan. <laughs> it certainly wasn't his, but God's plan, as soon as he, as soon as he knew what it was. <clears throat> and then uh, we see him making the journey to his ancestral home of his uh, forefather David, right, to Bethlehem, without complaint, taking his carpenter's tools simply in the sack on the way, and then taking his uh, wife, who was already very heavy with child, and uncomplaining, going on the way, uh, trustingly. And what they find when they get there is a small town engulfed with people, right? And uh, then being told, well, you'll have to go stay out in the, in the stable. We might say that St. Joseph uh, and the Blessed Mother and our Lord, when he was to be born, might have preferred the comforts of the inn, but maybe not. I mean, this again was going to according to a divine plan. <clears throat> and so God the Father had selected the place for the birth of his son, and it wasn't going to be in the inn. But you can imagine that inn would have been kind of a madhouse, unfortunately, with people from all over, the, all over Judea and Galilee, swarming in there, streaming in, and filling the place up. I mean, how, what was the population of Bethlehem? We don't know, but the population must have swelled dramatically. Uh, so that what we call the little town of Bethlehem must have become like a thriving metropolis, <laughs> practically uh, in a matter of weeks. Maybe the inn really was the more civilized choice. Anyway, it was in the inn that, or in the, uh, I'm sorry, maybe the stable was the more civilized, tranquil choice. And that is what God the Father chose for his son as a birthplace. Joseph might well have felt much more comfortable there too, much more at home there, right? 
with the simplicity of the animals. Remember, the great characteristic of Our Lady of St. Joseph was their simplicity, right? Not simple-mindedness, but the simplicity that is, is the foundation for wisdom. And so they might well have found there in the stable uh, uh, much more comfort than they would have found in the inn, <clears throat> in just the simplicity of God's creation of the animals and so on. In any case, we see, again, St. Joseph accepting that uh, without complaint. Um, and then we see him taking the child and his mother and fleeing into Egypt. Um, again, a rather harrowing experience, realizing that Herod's soldiers are about to descend upon uh, Bethlehem with their drawn swords to begin to mercilessly hack the little children to death because they were looking for this one child. But St. Joseph dutifully uh, wakes up from sleep and takes the child and his mother and begins the journey southward to Egypt, some distance away. They'd already traveled 70 miles south from Nazareth in Galilee to come to Bethlehem. Now, or, or even Jerusalem, it might have been even farther to get to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is kind of southwest of uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so they had another long trek ahead of them. Um, so they set out on the journey, again, not knowing. But St. Joseph had this absolute trust in divine providence. And uh, that is why he was given the role of being the protector of the Holy Family, but also the protector of the universal church as well. Now in our own day, uh, we might also be mirroring that vocation of St. Joseph in the sense that when our Lord began his public life, St. Joseph had already left this world. He was already dead. He doesn't figure anywhere in the public life of our Lord. <clears throat> we might easily see why. I mean, after all, if Joseph was there to be the guardian of our Lord in his childhood, then when our Lord had grown to manhood, he no longer needed that guardian over him. He would begin his public life independently. Even his mother, Mary, would be relegated to joining the little troop of women who followed them to carry out essential purposes quietly, right? For the apostles of, uh, I don't know, you know, what the women would do for them as far as food, you know, and, and taking care of clothing and other essential things. But they were there to serve in any case, in any way, and it helped. They went again there, they could. Even Our Lady was relegated to that. St. Joseph is nowhere mentioned there. And um, the reason is that he had died in the company of our Lord Jesus Christ, his foster son, and the Blessed Mother, uh, sometime during that quiet life together in Nazareth. <coughs> so when our Lord was making his public life and is working his miracles, and uh, when he was condemned to die and actually died on the cross, St. Joseph was not there. He was not on earth. Where was he? He would have been in limbo with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elias, Jeremiah, right? Ezekiel, the great prophets, all of the fellows faithful to God. He would have been waiting there for them. But he wasn't there to have an active role in the passion and death of our Lord. 
And so we, we wonder in our own time now, St. Joseph is the protector of the universal church. But we wonder now that the church on earth is entering into this phase, what St. Joseph's role will be. Okay. Uh, when in the life of Christ, he was in the limbo of the just. Now you can be sure that St. Joseph was doing what, with what those other holy souls were engaged in, that is prayer. Um, that they were praying uh, with our Lord, you know, and in his work of the redemption, they were joining their prayers to our Lord crucified and so on. Certainly, they had a role to play. We are asked now to turn to St. Joseph by virtue of the example he set, that his influence remains there. Does he still remain as the protector of the universal church now when he was not left on earth to be with our Lord during his passion and death. Well, yes, he still remains as the protector of the universal church here on earth, but he now again is not from the limbo of the just, from, from, from heaven itself. He's using his spectacular place in heaven to intercede for the souls of the faithful here on earth. And he is every bit as concerned for the sanctification of our souls, and especially the justification of our souls and the protection of us from the vice of purity, which is the greatest of all the contagions. As the lady said, more souls go to hell because of sins against purity than for any other reason. He is a great champion for purity of the souls of the faithful. So we have every bit as much reason to turn to him as any Catholic ever did. And, in fact, in many ways, even more urgently, do we need to turn to him now uh, that uh, the mystical body of his foster son, the mystical body of Christ, is going through what it's going through right now. We need to turn to him, but we need his influence. We need his example, we need his prayers. So, um, right in the middle of Lent, we turn to St. Joseph, and within a matter of a couple of weeks after Easter, we turn again to St. Joseph. And so he figures very prominently in the time of trial and tribulation for our Lord, and then he figures very prominently in the, in the days of triumph of our Lord after we celebrate the resurrection. This is St. Joseph's place for us, and this is the place he should hold in the heart of every single Catholic. So I, I recommend that people turn to St. Joseph. The expression in the uh, Bible, in the Vulgate Bible, is Ite ad Yosef, that um, there was an Old Testament figure, the twelfth son of the patriarch Jacob, who, by the providence of God, uh, sold into slavery by his own brothers, wound up in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and foresaw the famine that would come upon the whole world and was entrusted with the task of saving food so that when the whole world was on the verge of starvation because of famine, they could come to Egypt and there they would find nourishment, to, which was a matter of life and death for them. Right? They found their nourishment there because the grain of Egypt had been, had been uh, conserved 
uh, over seven years of bountiful harvests for a seven-year famine. That's when Joseph, uh, 12th son of Jacob, was reunited with Jacob, his father, and his brothers. Remember that? That's how the Hebrews came to Egypt in the first place. They came looking for food to survive. And everybody who was in those lands of famine were streaming to Egypt because that's where there was food, and there was food because of Joseph and uh, God's, you know, giving him the wisdom and prophetic power to preserve that food. <clears throat> the reason why that Joseph is considered to be kind of a forerunner of our Saint Joseph is because it was in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the house of bread, um, where the Son of God came to be born, and where then our Lord, who began his life, his, his, his life in the world, you might say, after his birth, right there in the stable in that town of Bethlehem, uh, would then consecrate the bread at the Last Supper, his own body, and become the bread of the angels, as we say, the Pontius Angelicum. So uh, there is actually this Old Testament figure of, of Joseph who uh, uncomplainingly followed God's will even into Egypt, even into the exile of Egypt, where God exalted him. And he, uh, he was able to provide, at that time, the bread of life for the nations around, uh, kind of symbolic of what was to come, that this Joseph was to be the custodian of the bread of life from heaven the living bread that came down from heaven. So, ite ad Yosef, go to Joseph. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Father. That's very beautiful. Oh. Very, well, certainly. So, yeah, very beautiful you. note to end on, I think. But uh, thank you for being here tonight for our, our first live stream edition. So hopefully all of our viewers were able to uh, turn in and, and watch the program. And uh, Well, I hope so, too. I think it might have been a long program. That's right? okay. <laughs> but, uh, case, we got through uh, a lot. <laughs> I hope our, our viewers survived yeah, our first live stream. And uh, we thank our uh, technical uh, geniuses for getting this together here. And someday we'll put credits where credit is due. That's right. People know who's doing this for us. That's right. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Certainly done. Thank you. Yeah. Blessed Lent to all. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.